Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in the book of Judges, um, chapter 13 through 16, so four chapters, each chapter take 20 minutes, we're going to be here a good amount of time this morning, okay? Don't worry, second round of restaurants in town, they'll be ready for you, no problem. But our attention this morning is on the judge known as Samson, yes, that guy that picked up a donkey jawbone and busted a few heads and couldn't keep his eyes and his lust in check off the flesh and eventually brought down the house. Judges chapter 16, if you would. We'll go back to 13 in a moment, but if you would stand with me, we'll read at the end of the story first and come back and fill in the rest, starting in verse 26. The word of God says, Samson said to the young man who was leading him by the hand, lead me where I can feel the pillars supporting the temple so I can lean against them. The temple was full of men and women. All the leaders of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching Samson entertain them. He called out to the Lord, Lord God, please remember me. Strengthen me, God, just once more with one act of vengeance. Let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them one on his right and one right hand and the other on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed at his death were more than those he killed in his life. Then his brothers and all his father's family came down, carried him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of his father Manoah. So he judged Israel 20 years. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, open up your word to us this morning in our hearts to hear what the, what the Spirit has to say to us. Father, what we do not know, would you teach us and as we listen, Father, that you would make us more like Christ. Father, for the areas of our life that are impure, the judgments of our heart that are wrong, the lust that fills our eyes where we turn away from your word, your way, your will, Father. Correct us this morning. And Lord, we pray with Samson, remember us once more. We pray this for your glory and our good in the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Back to Judges chapter 13, if you will, back to the beginning of Samson's life, actually before he was born, before his time. It's a good place to start. We're given at the end of chapter 13 this statement in verse 25 about Samson before he goes and starts his life. 
the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. And that is a great place to start. But going back even further, one interesting side note about chapters 13 through 16 is that in the judges' cycle, Israel has always cried out to God about the oppression that they are under. We saw that last week with Gideon. We could go back to any of the other stories thus far. Israel always cried out, but there's a break this time in that cycle in that Israel has not cried out to the Lord. In fact, Israel will not cry out to the Lord in the Samson saga. Nonetheless, God raised up Samson to drive a wedge between Israel and the Philistines. Otherwise, Israel would have just folded in to the Philistine culture. Samson is prophesied about or told, foretold about to his mother and his father there in chapter 13. An angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord comes to Manoah and his wife and tells them, informs them that up to this point, although they've been unable to have a child, now they're going to have one. And here are the things that they must do. If you look at verses four and five, the angel of the Lord says, please be careful not to drink wine or beer or to eat anything unclean, for indeed you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth. And he will begin, key word there is begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. So before Samson ever comes on the scene, God sent his messenger to his parents to say, this boy is gonna be different. This child is to be set apart. His birth is very similar to what we know of Abraham and Sarah not being able to have a child, but then comes the child of promise, Isaac. We even see that in John the Baptist, the foretelling of his birth, and even our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But this vow of the Nazarite was one that was to be taken seriously. Are there other Nazarites in Scripture? Yes, there are. Samuel, who you'll see toward the end of the Judges in his book, First and Second Samuel. We'll learn a great deal about him. He was a Nazarite. Also, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Yes, the one with, uh, that wore, was it camel's hair and had long scraggly hair and ate uh, locusts? Yeah, that's the one. Yes, the Nazarite. The Nazarite was one that is set apart for the purposes of God. This vow that he takes sets him apart from the people around him. Not every Israelite would have followed that, but the Nazarite would have. Samson was set apart for, for that very specific purpose, that he would begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. But even in Samson's day, in this moment, though Israel has not cried out, Israel still has that problem of idolatry. Samson is not going to be immune to that issue and that sin of idolatry. Although his idol is not going to be made of wood and stone, his idol is one of flesh, the opposite kind from him. He has a tendency to give in and lust after women. Not only that kind of flesh, but he has the idol of himself. He sees himself as an idol. See, what idols do is that it will lead you to rationalize your sin. Because you're not worshiping or not giving your attention, your affection, your love, your devotion to the one true God, but rather an idol that you have fashioned, your idol is gonna be okay with your sin. So it leads you to rationalize your sin. 
An old Puritan writer named Thomas Brooks uh, wrote this. He said, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. That's exactly what an idol will do. And what you find throughout Samson's life is that holiness is not a list of do's and don'ts, but rather holiness begins, being set apart for God begins with a deep and abiding love for God and inside that relationship. But that kind of relationship for Samson is a struggle at best. You go to chapter 14. As the spirit began to stir in Samson, God has put that in him. He is beginning to, uh, uh, to, to be stirred for Israel, to stirred against the Philistines, we would think. But there, in chapter 14, we see Samson as a man full of flaws. Samson's life embodies uh, uh, really pictures the sinfulness of Israel. Now, what you're going to hear me this morning, you're going to hear me beat up on Samson, okay? But let me be quick to say, we should insert ourselves where Samson is at some point. We are no different than Samson. We are no better than Samson. Samson is like each one of us. He is a sinner, okay? We need to remember that. Just as Samson is a man full of flaws, so are we. If you read Judges from chapter one all the way to the end, you will find none worse off. If we were ranking sin, you would find none worse than Samson, a man full of flaws. In verses one through four, you see him quickly with a wondering eye. Look at this. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back, told his father and his mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. What's the problem with that? He's a young man in love, right? But that was against God's law. They weren't supposed to marry outside of Israel. They weren't supposed to marry outside of God's people. And here is Samson marrying or wanting to marry a Philistine woman. You even see this in the objection of his mother in verses, uh, father in verse three. But his father and mother said to them, can't you find a woman among your relatives or amongst your, any of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? They are not set apart for the Lord, Samson. You are. We are supposed to be as Israelites. But look what Samson says. Get her for me. She's the right one, baby. What an interesting thing. What we see in Samson is what we've seen thus far in Israel. He's doing what is right in his own eyes. At the same time, we keep reading in verse 4, his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord. God is using this. He's using Samson's choice in his pursuit of Philistine women to drive a wedge between the Philistines and Israel. What Samson will not do, God is going to do for him. He's going to drive that wedge between the two people groups. But what we see in Samson's life, though, now is that Nazarite vow is beginning to un- come undone. As Samson is set apart for holiness, he's living in his impulsive nature, his sinful nature, and he will break every single vow in his life, this Nazarite vow. And that is the exact approach that Israel took, doing what was sinful and evil in God's eyes, but what seemed right in theirs. That is gonna be a sin every single day time. But God, again, will use Samson because it's going to drive that wedge. What's the deal with Israel? Israel hadn't cried out for deliverance at this point. What's the deal with Israel? Why is it okay with Samson at this point for him to go marry a Philistine woman? I would simply say they're comfortable. 
They haven't been driven to the point yet to cry out for deliverance. Every other time the oppression was so great, they cried out to God because they couldn't take it anymore. God, you've got to save us. You must save us. But it's not that way this time. If it wasn't for God taking action in this moment, the Israelites would have been consumed into their culture. But yet you'll remember from their founding, God called Abraham out to be different. He called him to be set apart so that the nations would look at Israel's God and say, yes, that is the one true God. We must worship their God. The story continues in verse 5. Samson goes again down to Timnah with his father and mother, and he comes into the vineyards of Timnah. Now, what are they doing in the vineyards? Many think there at that moment he has broken yet another vow, the one about wine and beer. He wasn't supposed to touch that, but well, where does that come from? I know you're all Baptist, but come on, right? It comes from grapes. Hello, he's in the vineyard. Mm, Put two and two together. There's another one. Suddenly a young lion came roaring at him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. I don't know what that's like. I've never torn a young goat apart but okay. He said, uh, but he did not tell his father and his mother what he had done. Then he went and spoke to the woman because, again, here you go, she seemed right to Samson. The lion carcass. He comes back after some time, and that carcass is, I'm not sure how long it takes bees to make honey in that kind of setting. Some have said about six months, maybe a little bit longer. So there is some, quite some time between verse 7 and verse 8. But he comes back down the road and he sees, he goes looking for that carcass and there's a swarm of bees with honey inside and he scoops out that honey and he eats some of it and then he takes it to his father and mother. So now here's another vow. He has touched something that is unclean and now he has eaten something out that is uh, from something that is unclean and he's defiled his mother and his father. You just see the cycle continues to spiral downhill. He doesn't even tell his mom and dad that he scooped honey out of the lion carcass. I mean, I'm pretty sure you would have had the same reaction I'm thinking I would have, which is out comes the honey when you find out it was inside of the carcass of a dead lion. I mean, that's disgusting. Then Samson goes on to prepare a feast, a wedding feast of sorts, a celebration at that feast, there would have been yet another vow broken. Then he comes, then he becomes the Riddler. You thought the Riddler came from Batman, DC Comics. He did. He came from the Bible. He's right here. After seven days, verse 10, the father went to visit the woman, and Samson prepared the feast. The young men were accustomed to doing. Verse 11, when the Philistines saw him, they brought 30 men to accompany him. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can explain it to me in, during the seven days of the feast and figure it out, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you can't explain it to me, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. All right, so we got some clothes on the line. Tell us your riddle. Somebody got that over there. Thank you. Tell us your riddle, they replied. Let's hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. So three days go by. We can't figure it out. They can't Google it, right? They can't Google the answer. They can't figure it out. So what do they do? They go to his wife. Persuade your husband to explain the riddle to us or we will burn you and your father's family to death. Remember that. Did you invite us here to rob us? She goes to her husband and 
You won't tell me the answer. You don't really love me. <laughs> he says, I ain't even told my mom and dad. What makes you think I'm going to tell you? You don't love me. So here he is. He tells her because she nagged him and nagged him. I'm not going to say a word about nagging, wives. I'm not going to say it. But there you go, men. She nagged him and he gave in. On the seventh day before sunset, the men of the city came to him. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Next verse, or continuing, he said, so he said to them, if you hadn't plowed with my young cow, you wouldn't know my riddle now. Your translation might say, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, men do not use that word in relation to your wife. Please, reference to your wife. But he's right. If you hadn't gone to her and messed with her and threatened her, you wouldn't have known the answer. So what does he do? Well, again, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him. Again, this is to drive a wedge between the Philistines and the Israelites. He goes down to another city, Ashkelon, not Timnah, but Ashkelon, and he kills 30 of their men, takes their belongings, and gives it to the men in Timnah. Then we hit chapter 15. The spiral continues. When I see chapter 15... I just kind of think this is what it looks like when God is a leisure activity. Chapter 15 begins in verse 1 where Samson is uh, another part of the year later on. He is late to his own wedding. I want to go to my wife in her room, he said, but her father would not let him enter. Verse 2, I was sure you hated her, her father said, so I gave her to one of the men who accompanied you. Isn't her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Why not take her instead? Well, now Samson is not getting what he wanted. So he's going to take retaliation. He's going to take vengeance for himself in verses 4 and 5. He goes out and he catches 300 foxes. And to the foxes' tails, he ties them uh, tail to tail and puts a torch between their tails and turns them loose in the fields in the harvest time. And the harvest is burned up. Again, to drive a wedge between Israel and Israel. And the Philistines. Verses six through nine, the escalation is growing, tension is growing. The Philistines want to know who did this, and they all point to Samson. It was Samson. It was the Timnite's son in law because he took, and here's what happens they were threatening to burn them. Now, because of this, they actually burn his wife and his father in law to death. Verse 7, because Samson says, because you did this, I swear that I won't rest until I have taken vengeance on you. He tore them limb from limb and then went down and stayed in the cave at the rock at Edom. The Philistines went up, camped in Judah, and raided Lehi. So the men of Judah said, why have you attacked us? They replied, we have come to tie Samson up and pay him back for what he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah, do you hear that? The men of Judah are Israelites. They are going to go and try to arrest, bind up Samson, one of their own, and hand him over. That's how okay Israel is with their surroundings. That's how okay and how meshed they are with the Philistines. Now we understand why God needed to drive a wedge between the, the, the two people groups. 3,000 men of Judah, he continues on, went to the cave at the rock at Edom, and they asked Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines rule us? What have you done to us? I've done to them what they did to me. So they tie up Samson 
And here comes the great confrontation in verse 14. They come to Lehi. The Philistines come to meet them. The Spirit of the Lord again comes upon Samson. He breaks the ropes that are tying his arms together, and he finds a fresh donkey jawbone and busts a few heads. Yeah. Not just a few. A thousand. And then you get Samson's song. If you were with us uh, a couple of weeks ago, last week, when we kind of flew through just a brief introduction, I I mentioned briefly Deborah and Barak. Deborah, the song of Deborah that's captured in this book, it's all about how God delivered Israel and how God used them and moved through them to bring deliverance to his people and celebrated God. But you see Samson's song in verse 16, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. It's all about Samson. There's nothing there of God using him. Worship of Samson by Samson. And then at the end of chapter 15, you see just a glimpse of grace in his life when he becomes very thirsty in verse 18 after busting a few heads with that donkey jawbone. He comes to the Lord and he says, you've accomplished this great victory through your servant. Must I now die of thirst? So God graciously gives him water from a rock. And then we hit chapter 16, Samson now totally compromised. Holiness, what separation is there? We'll go think about for a moment before we get even deeper into chapter 16 about holiness, if you will. Some of my illustration is one I read, and it made sense being that we're on the coast and we see uh, well, blue or green crabs, whichever that color is, and lobsters, same kind of family, right? They wear their skeleton on the outside. They have that hard protective shell versus a human's skeleton system. It's on the inside. God's will, and here's how that plays out. God's will is that you be holy because he is holy. He desires that you be sanctified and set apart unto him. And that happens through that relationship with Jesus. You're not holy before you come to Jesus and then you get holier. Like some people think, well, I can't come to church or I can't come to Jesus because I I gotta clean myself up. I got a few things I need to get rid of first before I come to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that would make salvation a works-based salvation and that is not what scripture teaches. Salvation is by grace through faith. And it's not a work. It's not yourself doing it so that you can't boast about how you cleaned yourself up before you came to Jesus. It is the work of Christ and the blood shed on the cross for your sin that cleanses you from all unrighteousness, not your work. So don't think you got to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. Holiness is not like that. Holiness is not a, a list of do's and don'ts, but holiness comes through that love relationship and that committed relationship to Jesus Christ. So it's not a list of do's and don'ts, but it rather is conformity after Christ, conformity to the character of God, obedience to the will of God as he calls you to walk and grow in Christ, you will grow then in holiness. So holiness is that internal skeletal system, if you will, of following Jesus. It's not what's on the external, but rather what's on the internal that gives it shape and form. Now, Samson has compromised his vow. Chapter 13, 14, and 15, he's compromised that vow. He has lacked that heart-changing moment, that heart-changing encounter with God, because Samson at this point is all about Samson, and you'll see even again in chapter 16, it's all about Samson, and if you take God, following God, following Jesus as a leisure activity, that you'll do it when, you're, when it's convenient, then you're going to be compromised just like Samson, probably not will be, you already are compromised just like Samson. Friends, the holiness of God 
The pursuit of holiness is not a leisure activity. If you're in Christ, you're called to be holy, brothers and sisters. Pursue it. Pursue it with reckless abandon. Now, we look at chapter 16 again. From grace to disgrace. Chapter 16 is that final episode, that final chapter of the saga of Samson. The same kind of pattern we've seen so far in Samson, we see again. He goes down to Gaza. He sees a young woman there, a Philistine prostitute, and he wants her because it's right in his eyes, and so he does. The Philistines come with him, or come upon him, and he takes a few of them out, and he takes out the city gate. Then in verse 4, some time later, we skip ahead. He falls in love with a woman named Delilah. The danger to Samson thus far has been his own success. The more he found, the more he thought of himself and less of God, which was the source of his strength all along. For Samson's success and his strength has become the idol, looking at himself. And it, and it definitely, success can be a hindrance to your spiritual growth. Here's what I mean. Faith grows in adversity, not comfort. When we are stretched, when that faith is tested, that's where faith will grow, not when we're surrounded in comfort. And Delilah's come in when we think we're doing it the right way. Delilah came into his life because he had an eye, he had a weakness for the lust of the flesh. As it happened, it didn't take long after they were together that the Philistine leaders took notice and they go to her. Notice it's not just one leader from one city, but it's leaders more than one. They are all ganging up against him now and they, they want her to persuade him, verse five, to tell you where his great strength comes from so we can overpower him. Tie him up and make him helpless. Each of us will then give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Well, that's too good to be passed up. And so there in verse 6 through 27, we have what I call a heavyweight bout. Delilah versus Samson. Samson versus Delilah. In verses 6 through 9, oh, please tell me, Samson, where does your great strength come from? How could someone tie you up and make you helpless? Hello, you should know, Samson, what's about to happen. You should be thinking, but no, he's got his blinders on. Listen, when you're stuck in sin, sin will put blinders on you and you will not see it coming. So this time he says, oh, fresh leather strips. Tie me up with fresh leather strips. No, that doesn't work, so on to round two. Ropes that have never been used before. Brand new ropes. Oh, Samson, you mocked me and you told me lies. Won't you please tell me how I can be tied up? Tie me up with new ropes. I will become weak like any other man. Well, that doesn't work. He breaks free and takes them out. Round three, verses 13 and 14. Delilah said to Samson, you mocked me all along and told me lies. Tell me how you can be tied up. He told her if you, now he's getting closer to the truth in round three. He's getting closer to the truth. You're on thin ice here, Samson. He told her, if you weave the seven braids on my head into the fabric of a loom. She fastened the braids with a pin and called to him, Simon, uh, Samson, the Philistines are here. And he woke up from his sleep and pulled out the pin with the loom and the web. Verse 15, round four begins. 
How can you say, I love you, she told him, when your heart is not with me? This is the third time you have mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. And so she continues to nag him day and night. Eventually, he gives in. He says, my, my hair has never been cut because I'm a Nazarite to God from birth. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. He realized, she realized that he had said the truth. He had spoken the truth. Delilah wins. She takes a razor to his head while he's asleep. And she calls out to him again, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up. Notice the assumptions that he makes. I will go out as at any other time and shake myself free. He didn't realize his hair's gone. (laughs) Even more importantly is verse 20, the end. He did not know that the Lord had left him. The final piece to the Nazarite vow is broken. His hair is gone. Delilah has won. But what is even worse is that he had no idea God had left him. That's how far away he was. Gary Phillips wrote, it's one thing to lack fellowship with God. It's quite another to be so at variance with God that you don't know, that you don't know, that you lack that eternal relationship. His strength is gone. He'd come to believe, friends, that his strength was his. No matter what he did or how he did it, that strength was never going to leave him. He was at this point unable to see how much he depended on God's presence and God's grace. Folks, when you begin to understand in this life of following Jesus and commitment to Jesus, when you begin to understand how much of that, that all of it depends on God's grace, then you will begin to grow in Christ. God's power always flows within that commitment to honor him, to trust him, to love him, to serve him. When we put our trust in him, we'll say, yes, Lord. God's power flows through that, the indwelling of the spirit with us as the church. But there remains this mystery in this this story as to how God works when he chooses to work. That he would continue to use a man like Samson, though set apart from birth, certainly not holy. But that's God's job. He works how he works. That's his sovereignty. Sometimes we might think if we do the right list of things, some of us assume that because he worked this way in the past through us, he'll do it again no matter what's been going on since the last time we met with him. Some of us might think there's a formula here, right? Push the right buttons, attend church, things like we pray, I go to church, I live right, I do all of these things in order that what? We might receive a blessing and get out of the hard stuff and get into a comfortable spot. But that would mean that our God is a conditional God and I don't read where God is a conditional God in scripture. I read where God is a sovereign God. I read where he is a God of grace and that he gives us every day what we do not deserve. And he withholds what we do deserve. You see, if Samson, nothing of his strength depended on Samson. God's power is vastly different. God's power is based on grace. And it comes through that relationship through Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There is no growth 
There's no power. There's no strengthening of our faith except without that commitment to follow Jesus and that trusting commitment to follow Jesus and to be his disciple. In all of that, God is going to use Samson as he began to drive the wedge between Israel and the Philistines, which won't be done until David becomes king. I said a few moments ago, when we see Samson, I really see us. Israel is there. Everything about Samson's life is just, you can look at Israel and see the same patterns. Israel was called and set apart to make God known to the nations, and yet they had an eye for idols. They wanted to be like everybody else around them. They constantly looked at the other nations, the other peoples. They didn't want to be what God had set them up to be. They wanted to be what everybody else was. That, of course, led them to trust in those idols, to look like the other peoples, adopting their way of living. Eventually, Israel will get it right, but it takes a long exile to get them there. That's later in the story. When we look at Samson, we need to see ourselves. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter wrote to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, we are that chosen race. I'm not talking about the color of your skin. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. I'm not talking about the United States of America. It doesn't matter what tribe, what language, what nation, what constitution or the tyrant you fall under. If you are a believer in Christ, you are the church. We are the church. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Why? So we can go around and flaunt it? No, so that we can proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what Samson was supposed to do. He's supposed to be that Nazarite that was set apart. That's what Israel was supposed to be. They were supposed to be that group of people set apart to proclaim the excellencies of God, to proclaim the, the, the praises of God, who called them out of darkness, who called them out of nothingness. Proclaim his marvelous light. It is our calling now as the church to take that light into the darkness and not cozy up with Delilah. God issued that command to us and it's that, that challenge that we must remember that our eyes and hearts, just like Samson, can stray off and fall for idols and false narratives. But we are called to serve God because we love him, most importantly because he first loved us and sent Jesus to die for us on the cross. Now, I beat up on Samson enough. Let me show you where God's grace comes in. Can I do that? End on a good note. Verse 22. Excuse me, verse 20. No, excuse me, verse 22. I'll get it right. Y'all, I'm wearing these progressives, and they just, I got to get used to it still. I'm working on it. At the bottom, the letters are real big. Let's get back to it. The Philistines, verse 21, the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he was forced to grind grain in the prison. 
Oh, how far Samson has fallen. The mighty hero slaying a thousand men with a donkey jawbone, now grinding grain, blind, chained, shackled, embarrassed, humbled. Here's God's grace. But his hair began to grow back after it had been shaved. His hair began to grow back. You know what that means? That means God wasn't done with him yet. You see, Samson was a Nazarite for life, for his life. He's still alive. He's still going to be a Nazarite. God is going to redeem this moment through Samson. His hair began to grow back. Now, there's a great big worship gathering happening there in verse 23, but they're not worshiping God, the the God of Israel. They're worshiping Dagon, the God of the Philistines. They're all gathered around. They're hooping and hollering, singing their songs, and, and, and shouting about how their God has delivered Samson into their hands. And verse 25, it says, when they're in good spirits, they sang, bring Samson here to entertain us. Let's have some entertainment in the house of Dagon. And so here he comes. They bring him in. Verse 26 Samson is walking, being escorted in. Now the great, big, strong Samson is being escorted in, and they're leading him by the hand, and he asks that his hands be placed on the pillars. Now we get here to where we finally see Samson gets it. Verse 28, he called out to the Lord, Lord God, please remember me. Strengthen me, God, just one more time. While they're all gathering around doing their thing with Dagon, Samson, in the lowliness of spirit, brokenness, humility, he called out to God. One of only two times in four chapters that he called out to God, Lord, remember me. Strengthen me just once more. Let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. And God answered his prayer. Friends, I think this moment is why Samson is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. The hall of faith, if you will. He's mentioned with Gideon and several others. But he is one that through faith served and was strengthened in his weakness. In fact, his death, when he pushes those pillars out and brings down the house, and God uses this moment to drive that wedge further between the Israelites and the Philistines, this moment where he gives his life from a position of weakness, having been now strengthened by God, having gone through this this act of repentance, was probably, no, it was the most faithful act he had done in his life up to this point because he asked from brokenness. He asked from humility. We can look at Samson as a savior of sorts, but he's not the complete package because only Christ is that complete and total package. Samson died. He's still dead. His death, though, offers a victory for Israel over the Philistines and that struggle with the Philistines and will drive further that wedge. But even more greater still is the death of Jesus, the one true Savior, the one 
hero of the great big story of Scripture. Because from his death, through his death, paying the penalty for our sin, now victorious over sin, and in his resurrection, victorious over death, has dealt the final blow to our enemy and our adversary, that crafty old serpent. You might find yourself this, place in a, this morning in a place where you think you are that strong man, where you are that strong woman, but like Samson, I can tell you in time, you will find out you are weak. God has a way of humbling us in those moments to bring us to a place of brokenness, shackles, where we need repentance. And if you would, like the thief on the cross, pray. If you would, just like Samson, pray, oh Lord, remember me. Just one more time. You may also already be in that place of weakness. Cry out to the Lord this morning. I have been. Keep going. Persevere in that crying out. Persevere in that prayer. Because the end of the story is this weak man crying out to the Lord for deliverance in which God actually makes him stronger than he ever was before. Why? Because he turned and showed his trust in God. No longer was it about Samson. Now it is about God. Come to the Lord this morning and ask him and he will save you. There in Samson's life at the end of chapter 16, grace to disgrace and back again. I'll finish with that verse 22. May just be you need to hear this morning the hair's gonna grow back. There's hope, always hope when God is fighting your battles.